As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. In 1992, Michael W. Smith and Wayne Kirkpatrick asked the question in a song. Tell me why you wear your cross of gold. The questioning went like this. Is it a flame? Is it a passion? A symbol of love living in you? Or is it a game? Religion and fashion some kind of phase you're going through. For some, it's simply something to wear around your neck, just a chain, jewelry. Is it decoration? Is it an icon or proclamation? For some, it's simply something to wear around your neck, just a chain. It means a lot more than that to me. Tell me. Why you wear your cross of gold. While we would never glamorize the hangman's noose, the firing squad's bullet, the executioner's syringe, or the electric chair, the cross has become an icon that marks graves, adorns architecture, and is worn on lapels and necklaces. Why the difference? What is it about the executioner's method used on Jesus that makes it distinct from all other forms of capital punishment? I believe the difference is that there is a certain glory that can be seen in the gruesome death of our Savior. Now, if you know me, you know that I am more of an action movie guy than Shakespearean theater. But there is a line from Shakespeare's King John that has inspired a common phrase that is used today. Shakespeare's character says, To gild refined gold, to paint the lily, To throw perfume on the violet is wasteful and ridiculous excess. The word picture by King John has been combined into a more popular don't gild the lily, which Webster defines as to add unnecessary ornamentation to something that is beautiful in its own right. Throughout history, preachers have 
embellished the story of the cross with memorable rhetorical devices. I think of S.M. Lockridge repeating, It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. Or Carmen, the recording artist who counts backwards in the song, The Champion. I've heard sermons that describe the weapon and the number of stripes endured in the scourging. I've heard messages that detail the extreme humiliation of Roman crucifixion. I've heard lessons depicting the length of the thorns, the placement of the nails, and the texture and the weight of the cross. But as I worshipped in the message of these verses this week, the Holy Spirit kept telling me, don't gild the lily. Don't add unnecessary ornamentation to something that is beautiful in its own right. As I meditated within the text, I kept looking for Dr. Luke's unique perspective. After all, the fact that he was a physician played a role in the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to give more pregnancy details than all of the other gospel writers combined. So I expected the physician to reveal physical nuances that are absent from the others. But I was surprised to read very little about the physicality of these events. So I'm looking for Luke's perspective. And several years ago, I was introduced to an artist by the name of Michael Murphy. His specialty is three-dimensional art that appears to be one thing when you look from one position and something very different when a patron views from a different angle. Let's take the next 60 seconds to get this idea of how the way we see something changes what we see. So the reality of what was there was always there. It's just our understanding of it changes when we look from different perspectives. And without trying to gild the lily or to put perfume on a violet, I want to find what is Luke's unique perspective of these events that the Holy Spirit prompts him for us to understand. 
As I thought about the various interactions that happened in today's text, at first it looked like one of Murphy's sculptures from the side. But as the Holy Spirit moved me from the perspective of a physician to the posture of a worshiper, I began to see Luke's focus, and his focus is upon the glory that can be found in this gruesome event. The first glory that I see from Luke's story is indeed the glory of compassion. And compassion is first seen in Simon. Now, I first started to consider the possibility of compassion linked to Simon when I read the New Bible Commentary that says... A crowd always attended executions out of curiosity or compassion. So while Simon's being compelled to carry the cross may not be an act of compassion, the very fact that he was present in order to be conscripted into service was evidence of some level of compassion. Now, you are free to disagree with me. I I know I'm reading between the lines. So you're free to disagree with this conclusion that there's any compassion that is demonstrated here in verse 26. Some see this act as motivated purely by impatience. The guards just want to get it over with. And the quickest way to get up there is to find somebody else to carry the cross. They concluded that Simon or that the soldiers compelled Simon simply so that they could get on with things and get the crucifixion over. But when we get to verse 47, we find a centurion who agrees with the verdict of Herod and Pilate that Jesus was innocent. And as the officer in charge of the detail, I choose to believe the possibility that They were committing an injustice is rolling around as a possibility in the mind of the centurion. So he overrules the brutality of his soldiers and he seizes seizes Simon to carry the cross. Just as an interesting side note, some see Rufus, that Mark 15.21 said Rufus was the son of Simon. Some see this same Rufus as mentioned by Paul in Romans 16.13. So it may require connecting some dots, but I see it as very reasonable that a man driven by curiosity or compassion all the way from North Africa would be in Jerusalem. And then as Jesus was coming, because he had heard of Jesus, he went out of compassion to see the Via Dolorosa. And that his son would be named as part of the early church in Rome. So I may be connecting some dots that aren't necessarily there, but... I see compassion at work. Not only in Simon, but I also see compassion demonstrated in the women of Jerusalem. It is not insignificant that Jesus speaks directly to these women in verses 27 through 31. 
by identifying them as the daughters of Jerusalem, they would not have been the disciples who followed him around Galilee or those who accompanied him from Jericho before the triumphal entry. The disdain that the Jewish leaders had for women would have meant the women were totally excluded from the meeting in Caiaphas' house. And when they made their appeal to Pilate, the men would make that appeal. Women would not be a part of that. It is possible that they were among the locals who cried, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! On Palm Sunday. And the fact that these women disagreed with the Romans, they disagreed with the religious elite, revealed their compassion for Jesus. They had compassion for him, and he had compassion for them. The fact that he addresses them reveals his compassion for them and for their descendants. Jesus is saying in these verses, if the Romans would allow this to happen to an innocent man, there are days coming, prophesied in Hosea 10.8, when Jewish residents will be considered outlaws. And if the Romans do this to an innocent man, what do you think the Romans are going to do to an outlaw? Just wait to see how they're treated. And women will wish that they had never given birth. See, from the glory of compassion that is present between Jesus and the spectators, I next notice that there is a glory of forgiveness. Not only compassion, but compassion applied as forgiveness. And Jesus offers forgiveness to many who are present. He first offers forgiveness to the mob in verses 33 through 34. Five times in these two verses, I see the pronoun they. And some think they refers only to the soldiers. But I see not only they is talking about the soldiers, forgive them because they do not know what they are doing. Because I also look back to verses 21 through 25 and I see they three times. I believe the they in 21 through 25 was the crowd who was demanding crucify him, crucify him. And so when the mob and the religious leaders and the Romans came together, I think they're all included in the they that Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. The religious zealots who thought they were carrying out Deuteronomy 13, the soldiers carrying out Pilate's orders, and the mob driven by the emotion of seeing Pilate's weakness, all combined as a target of Jesus' forgiveness. Jesus offered the bread and the wine to Judas and to Peter, knowing their pending failures. And Jesus extends forgiveness to the mob on the basis of their ignorance. But Jesus doesn't only offer forgiveness to the mob, he also offers forgiveness to the malefactors. Those in verse 32, 
the criminals, as it is translated, who were crucified to his left and to his right. Now, we have all seen the, um, the crying mother attempt to defend her son in front of the news cameras. We've seen the crying mama say, oh, he's not a bad boy. He just gets involved with the wrong kind of people. He's not a bad boy. He just sometimes makes bad decisions. But the word that is translated here as criminals literally means one who customarily does bad things. Luke intentionally avoids terms that he could have used, terms that appear elsewhere in the New Testament that speak of evildoers as the foxes, the dogs, the wolves, the vipers, the devils, and those who dwell in darkness. Luke avoids all those harsh terms to simply say those who customarily do wrong things. In essence those whose sponge is wrapped in plastic. See, I I conclude that Luke here is not isolating these two as extreme, habitual, violent offenders. Luke frames these two as all who repeatedly do wrong. Is that not all of us? And Jesus extends forgiveness to all who will demonstrate repentance by both admitting our own sinfulness, as he says, don't you realize we deserve what we get? But he recognized Jesus' unique innocence. But he doesn't deserve this. And if all of us who do wrong repeatedly will admit, I deserve punishment, but he does not, we can receive the same forgiveness. The glory of forgiveness extended to the malefactors. So I've seen the glory of compassion. I've seen the glory of forgiveness. And as Jesus demonstrates unbelievable compassion and inconceivable forgiveness, I also note that he doesn't force acceptance. Jesus makes room for the glory of personal response. No less than six different responses to the very same event. The gentleman of heaven will not force your response. He will not drag you into heaven kicking and screaming. We are not programmed robots. One of God's greatest gifts is the freedom to choose a positive response to his initiative. One glory of the scriptures is that it presents both the initiative of God reaching out to redeem man and the requirements that we respond personally with a personal response. Let's look at the different responses to Christ up on the cross. The religious rulers, I see, they responded by trying to build their own reputations. In response to verse 34, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, where Jesus acknowledged they did not know what they are doing. The rulers reject the benefit of the doubt, 
and essentially claim, see, we told you. They're worried about their reputation to all the other people because they're not talking to Jesus. They're talking to the crowd saying, see, if he did that, let him do that because they're all worried about their own reputations. They say, if if he is who he says he is, he will do what we say. What arrogance. They're so eager to defend their own reputations as the arbiters of all things related to God that they can't even for a moment accept Jesus' offer of forgiveness. Verses 36 or 38 tells us about the soldiers. And while the soldiers also mocked, as the rulers did, I think the mocking of the soldiers is more a tone, and this is my reading. It's not official declared scripture. I think they're trying to soothe their consciences. So while it's true that they join in mocking with the rulers, I sense they're doing this out of a different motivation. Because many soldiers in many conflicts have been forced into impossible situations. If you've ever known a veteran dealing with PTSD, it's because oftentimes soldiers are placed into impossible situations. And in an attempt to save their own sanity, some adopt an alter ego while they are downrange. As a matter of fact, when I consider those who act differently, many, many soldiers for the Third Reich later had to face charges for war crimes because they carried out charges that others determined to be unjust. And they did in this setting what they would never do in another setting. And I think the soldiers are caught in that impossible situation. I see the soldiers mocking as different from the rulers for at least three reasons. Number one, the sour wine that they offered could have served as an anesthetic to dull the pain. Number two, while the rulers mock Jesus, the soldiers mock you. Remember, I just said, when we look at the he, the religious rulers say, he did this. And now I see the soldiers looking at Jesus and saying, You did this to yourself. Because I think they're trying to find a way out for the cruelty that they are demonstrating. And then they hang the title upon the cross. Jesus, King of the Jews. It's as if they were saying, we're only being good soldiers. As good soldiers, it's our job to eliminate a threat to our king. So maybe I'm Pollyannish, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I sense a difference between the soldiers and the religious rulers. They were bent on destruction. They find themselves in a bad situation, so I believe they respond to that bad situation with attempts to somehow soothe their conscience by finding an excuse for what is happening. Verses 44 through 46 
the triune God. Now notice I put response in quotation marks because God does not react to human situations, but it follows. Because this was happening, God did this. God tore the veil from the top to the bottom. Darkness covered the sun. This action of tearing the veil is not a reaction to the events because God is sovereign. He had always intended because the veil was originally intended as a measure of protection so that the glory of God would not overwhelm those who did service in the holy place. But get this. When the righteousness of Christ is imputed to believers, we are no longer overwhelmed by his glory so that it is a threat to us. It continues to make us marvel. We continue to stand amazed at the glory of our God. But his glory, in a limited degree, is now dwelling within us. And because his glory dwells within us, we are not overwhelmed by fear. And so the veil is no longer necessary. So the religious rulers were worried about their reputation. The soldiers were trying to soothe their conscience. God was trying to open up access to us. Verse 47 tells us about the centurion. The centurion who responds with a true proclamation. The judicial innocence that was first proclaimed by Pilate and by Herod, that same innocence is seen in this military commander of the garrison who was charged with carrying out the orders. It is the response of a truthful witness here. And this is what leads me to conclude that there was a measure of compassion earlier. When when Simon was assigned to carry, I think it's already rolling around in the centurion's head, we're executing an innocent man here. So I see the compassion, which now comes into full bloom as he glorifies God and says, this man was innocent. Verse 48 The crowd who had gathered out of curiosity or compassion responds as Jesus takes his last breath. They they respond respectfully. The the sign of beating the breast is is outside of our cultural awareness. But it, it would be like those of us who pull aside for a funeral procession. It's a public display of respect and honor. Even if we don't know who's in the hearse. As a sign of respect, we we pull over, saying some family is grieving because someone is dead. And and, and the beating of the breast was that cultural expression of death is not good. And as they walk away, I'm confident that the Holy Spirit is beginning to work in many of them. Many who saw Jesus upon that cross will later respond to Peter on the day of Pentecost. Yes, absolutely. Peter had Holy Spirit 
power in his preaching. But I also think there were 3,000 souls saved that day because many had spent the last 50 days thinking about Jesus on that cross. And finally, this text concludes with verse 49, that his acquaintances responded in what I'm calling disbelief. Notice that while Peter denied after being in darkness alone, here we see the plural. These disciples are not standing alone, but these plural, so they're united. They're together as they're watching from a distance. And I believe, I I use disbelief here, I believe disbelief is different than despair. And we don't have much detail to assign motives to these witnesses. But notice Luke does not use the word disciples, but the word that is translated for us, acquaintances. Luke does not say that the the disciples stood far off, but he uses a word that, that actually means those who knew him, those whom he had known. And this idea of known is an experiential know. Those who had experienced Jesus, those whom Jesus had experienced with, were watching from a distance. Those who had experienced with him were standing back and they were taking notice of all that was going on. I see confusion more than desperation. Because many of these are still together on Sunday morning. When the women leave the empty tomb, they go and they find the believers together. And I believe they're together because they knew Jesus had said, death is not the end. They see the death. They feel the death. They experience the death. It's horrendous in front of them. Yet there's still a glimmer of hope that this is not the end. And his acquaintances responded in this level of disbelief. Notice the way that Dr. Luke frames the events of his gospel. Chapter 1 begins with Elizabeth and Mary as the central characters. Women. And as Jesus makes his way to Calvary... He engages the women. And as Jesus breathes his last, Luke mentions the women who are witnesses of these events. Those that the world wanted to discredit, Luke says the women were there for all of this. I also notice Luke's de-emphasis upon the physical pain. As a physician, I would think the physical elements would catch his attention. But there's no mention of the scourging or the crown of thorns. There's no mention of him crying out in thirst, which was a medical symptom of dehydration. There's no mention of the blood and the water coming out as the spear is thrust into his side. 
It seems to me like Luke is going to great lengths to avoid sensationalizing the details that revival preachers like to emphasize. It's as if Luke is trying to shift the focus from Jesus' physical distress towards the variety of responses that people were having to the compassion and the forgiveness that his pain was proving. Which leads us to a response question. What is your response to Jesus' compassion and forgiveness? Luke's purpose was to show that Jesus was the forgiving Messiah even as he died. Jesus asked the Father to forgive those who were killing him. He forgave one of the men who was sentenced to die with him. And even in death, Jesus had power to make people right with God. Amen? So the question is, what is your response to Jesus' compassion and forgiveness? This is such a somber scene that we can't just leave it on the screen. We can't just leave it within the pages of the book. It demands a response for us. And if you have never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, today can be your day of salvation. In a moment, we're going to sing one more song. And as we're singing... If you would like to say, today I want to name Jesus as my Lord and Savior, we have advisors, both men and women, who can sit with you and show you from the pages of Scripture how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are born again. You can respond to this compassion, to this forgiveness, by receiving eternal salvation. If that's you, come as we sing. For the rest of us, let's reflect on the depth of his compassion as we sing together the old rugged cross.